Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. They take care of our air conditioning, and they'll do a great job for you. Visit the website and give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We've been talking about current world events. Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, will be talking about a wonderful example, a model for all ages, Booker T. Washington. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of books, his two latest are Great Murder Mysteries, Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. It is November the 22nd, and who could forget that on this day in 1963, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, was assassinated while traveling through Dallas, Texas in an open-top convertible. First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy rarely accompanied her husband on political outings, but she was beside him, along with Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, for 10-mile motorcade through the streets of downtown Dallas on November the 22nd. Sitting in a Lincoln convertible, the Kennedys and Connollys waved at the large and enthusiastic crowds gathered along the parade route. As their vehicle passed the Texas School Book Depository Building at 12.30 p.m., Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly fired three shots from the sixth floor, fatally wounding President Kennedy and seriously injuring Governor Connolly. Kennedy was pronounced dead 30 minutes later at Dallas Parkland Hospital. He was 46. President of the United States, uh, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, who was three cars behind President Kennedy in the motorcade, was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States at 2.39 p.m. He took the presidential oath of office aboard Air Force One as he sat in the runway at Dallas Love Field Airport. The swearing-in was witnessed by some 30 folks, including Jacqueline Kennedy, who was still wearing clothes stained with her husband's blood. Seven minutes later, the presidential jet took off for Washington, D.C., the next day, November the 23rd, President Johnson issued his first proclamation declaring November the 25th to be a day of national mourning for the slain president. On Monday, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets of Washington to watch a horse-drawn caisson bearing Kennedy's body. Who could forget uh, that scene? From the Capitol Rotunda to St. Matthew's Catholic Cathedral for a requiem mass and the solemn procession that continued on to Arlington National Cemetery where leaders of 99 nations gathered for the state funeral. Kennedy was buried with full military honors on a slope below Arlington House, where an eternal flame was lit by his widow, forever marking the grave. Lee Harvey Oswald, born in New Orleans in 1939, joined the U.S. Marines in 1956. He was discharged in 1959 and nine days later left for the Soviet Union, where he tried to unsuccessfully become a citizen. He worked in Minsk and married a Soviet woman, and in 1962 was allowed to return to the United States with his wife and infant daughter. In early 1963, he bought a 38 revolver and rifle with a telescopic sight by mail order, and on April the 10th in Dallas, he shot as, as he missed former U.S. General Edwin Walker, a, f- a figure known for his extreme right-wing views. Later that month, Oswald went to New Orleans and founded a branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a pro-Castro organization. In September 1963, he went to Mexico City with investigators alleged he attempted to secure a visa to travel to Cuba or return to the USSR. In October, he returned to Dallas and took a job at the Texas School Book Depository Building. Makes you wonder if he wasn't planning even at that time. Less than an hour after Kennedy was shot, Oswald killed a police officer who questioned him on the street near his rooming house in Dallas. Thirty minutes later, Oswald was arrested in a movie theater by police responding to a report of a suspect. He was formally arraigned on November the 23rd for murders of President Kennedy and, of course, J.D. Tippett, the officer who questioned him. On the 24th, Oswald was brought to the basement of the Dallas Police Headquarters on his way to more secure jail, uh, county jail. A crowd of police and press with live television cameras rolling gathered to witness his departure. As Oswald came into the room, Jack Ruby emerged from the crowd and fatally wounded him with a single shot from a concealed 38 revolver. 
Ruby was immediately detained, claimed that the rage at Kennedy's murder was the motive for his action. Some called him a hero, but he was nonetheless charged with first-degree murder. Jack Ruby was originally known as Jack Rubenstein, who operated strip joints and dance halls in Dallas and had minor connections to order organized crime. He features prominently in Kennedy assassination theories, and many believe he killed Oswald to keep him from revealing a larger conspiracy. In his trial, Ruby denied the allegation and pleaded innocent on the grounds that he was a great grief over Kennedy's murder and it caused him to suffer psychomotor epilepsy and shot Oswald unconsciously. The jury found Ruby guilty of murder with malice and sentenced him to die. On October the 16th, the Dallas-Texas uh, Court of Appeals reversed the decision on the grounds of improper admission of testimony and the fact that Ruby could not have received a fair trial in Dallas at the time. In January 1967, while awaiting a new trial to be held in Wichita Falls, Ruby died of lung cancer in a Dallas hospital. The official Warren Commission report of 64 concluded that neither Oswald nor Ruby was part of a larger conspiracy, either domestic or international, to assassinate the president. Despite its firm conclusions, the report failed to silence conspiracy theories surrounding the event. And in 1978, the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in a preliminary report that Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy that may have involved multiple shooters and organized crime. The committee's findings, as with those of the Warren Commission, continued to be disputed by some. November 22, 1963, the day that some say, and I believe, America truly lost its innocence. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Well, a red SUV sped past police checkpoint and barreled directly into children marching in a Christmas parade in Wisconsin on Sunday evening, killing at least five and injuring dozens. Police took into custody a single person of interest. After the horrifying incident in the Milwaukee suburb of Waukesha, transformed a festive celebration on Main Street into a bloody killing field, city officials tweeted out in the latest casualty figures early Monday morning, at the time, we can confirm that five people are deceased and over 40 injured, the city official tweeted. However, these murders and numbers may change as we collect additional information. Many people have been self-transported to area hospitals, the police department, and person of interest in custody. They have the person in custody, this person, quote-unquote, person of interest. While Keisha, police chief Dan Thompson said the incident occurred around 4.39 p.m. Central Time, and that one officer discharged his weapon in an unsuccessful attempt to stop the driver. Ambulances and police vehicles were used to transport people to hospitals. Some of the victims were children, and witnesses described a bloody scene with young bodies strewn on the street while adults administered CPR. Very tragic incident, very chaotic, Thompson said, adding the scene is now safe. Saw videos of what happened, just this car careening from one side of the road to the other and just running over young people in the parade. There were pom poms and shoes and spilled hot chocolate everywhere, uh, according to the, Mon the Montgomery uh, Milwaukee Journal. I had to go from one crumpled body to the other to find my daughter. My wife and two ch daughters were almost hit. Please pray for everybody. Please pray. My family's safe, but many are not. I held one little girl's head in my hand, and she was seizing, and uh, she was bleeding out her ears. I held her mother, and she collapsed, he said. How sad. Just so sad what happened last night. And senseless. But they have the person, the person, quote-unquote, person of interest. I guess they call this person a person of interest because of the legal proceedings that will follow. It all happened so fast. Very sad. <clears throat> Well, it's all pretty nauseating, but one Democrat in the entire House voted for a more than 2,000-page bill that is assault on our national principles of limited government, free enterprise, and fiscal responsibility. Let me ask you, are they trying to destroy our country? Who knows? But if they were, this legislation is a leap in that direction. You'd be hard-pressed to find even one single provision that would move America in the right direction. Maybe most demoralizing is how rotten to the core the Democrat Party's become. It's truly been morphed into a big uh, government party of Bernie Sanders and AOC. Even outside Congress, where the voices of indignant protest are reasonable, centrist Democrats denouncing the stink bomb, do you really think and believe that, for example, 
Raising U.S. taxes to the highest level in the industrialized world is in America's economic self-interest. There's only two plausible explanations here. Number one, they are economic ignoramuses. Or number two, they really are trying to destroy America, perhaps to atone for our sins. Black Lives Matter and nonsense. What a disgrace. We'll continue to fight this build-back broker monstrosity in the Senate, but after the House vote on Friday, sometimes we feel that we're just trying to reason with a gang of economic kamikaze pilots. Or maybe they think they'll be rewarded with seven virgins in heaven. (laughs) In any event, the House passed the bill on Friday. Hopefully, the Senate will demure, especially as we approach the 2022 elections. Finally, Kyle Rittenhouse shot three black men. He Traveled across state lines with a gun, AK-47. These are just three examples of false information being spread about Rittenhouse, whose trial ended last week. Even after acquittal, thank God he did receive justice. Uh, his life is in danger. I'm sure that, that he'll continue to suffer as a result of what I believe to be a malpractice of justice. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples. Longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambos says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you to whatever service or activity. And even if the person doesn't want to come out for socialization, if they have a question about, um, hey, where do I go for transportation? Where do I go for uh, a certain health care? If they have a need, we are able to point them in that direction through our information and referral service. So we're more than happy to assist in that as well. To find out more, visit CallYourSeniorResources.org. That's CallYourSeniorResources.org. Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Some great productions now lined up. You can get tickets by visiting the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, a multimedia website great for kids of all ages, including you and I. 
He's also the author of several books, uh, mainly about past presidents. You can find them right there on the website as well, uh, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Uh, so we'll talk about current world events right now. What's capturing a lot of the global news is the, are the lockdowns, especially in Europe, over COVID. I just want to get your thoughts on uh, Colin Hill. Right, so Europeans are a number of countries. The numbers have reached all-time highs. Uh, they're getting the Delta variant late, and they're also getting it in a double situation where some of the countries have relatively low vaccination rates, and those that have high vaccination rates have really not started giving out the booster. And as was learned in Israel, after six months, the effectiveness of the vaccine wanes tremendously. And so the numbers are way, way, way up. And some of the countries are doing rather extreme measures. Austria is the most extreme, where they've gone into a total lockdown. Initially, they were just looking to lock down the unvaccinated. Now they're going into a total lockdown for 14 days, I think it is. And then there is going to be a vaccine mandate for everybody by February, I think the date is. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's similar problems, but not to the same extent in in Holland, um, Germany, Germany, where you have a situation where what was formerly East Germany has a much lower vaccination rate um, than what was formerly West Germany, uh, primarily lower education level, um, and of course, having come from East Germany, that background, more suspicion, shall we say, of government. Mm -hmm. um, and we have similar problems in a good part of Eastern Europe as well. Uh, again, wherever the vaccination rates are lower, the numbers are higher. Um, the numbers are particularly high in those who are unvaccinated in terms of hospitalizations and death. Uh, those that are vaccinated can, especially the ones who have been more than six months, can clearly get the disease, but a much, 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 much smaller percentage of them actually get sick and go into the hospital. So the attempt is to try to convince as many people as possible one way or another to get vaccinated and um, mixed results, let's put it that way. Well, and, you know, it seems to me they could convince people by giving the information, good information, both good and bad, and the, the risks involved, as well as the benefits of taking the vaccine. But uh, lockdowns, I, I think what this demonstrates in one way is the fact that people really value their freedom and they don't like the government overreach, which really surprised me around the world. Well, no one likes to be told what to do. Let's start with that. It doesn't forget governments, forget anything else. People do not like to be told what to do, and particularly in democracies. I mean, if they're in a, you know in a totalitarian state of some kind, like North Korea, I guess you're used to it. That's the only thing you've ever known. Yeah. But people in democracies do not like to be told what to do. They do not like restrictions on their lives. It's very, you know, it's very reasonable. No one wants to be told they have to stay home. No one wants to be told they're restricted from going to X, Y, and Z places. Um, you know, the, the world, the modern world, has not known a pandemic before. Mm -hmm. was, the last pandemic was the flu outbreak in 1917, and that was a different world altogether. Mr. World War One, and communications were different, and everything else was very, very different. So the world is not doesn't really know how to how to deal with this in, in, in a greater sense, from a psychological standpoint, from a governmental standpoint. Um, and you have different attitudes of different countries. I mean, China continues attempted zero COVID, and so they have the most extreme lockdowns. The Chinese people, though, are, have been um, taught to be a little bit more accepting of whatever the government decides, obviously. Mm -hmm. You don't demonstrate in China because you'll end up in jail or dead. Um, so, it, well, look, it's a, it's a real problem. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting that the extreme opponents of vaccines tend to be far left and far right. Like everything else in our world these days, it's the extremes that, that come together in, in, a, in a strange sort of way. And in, we're seeing this very much around the world in terms of um, not people who are, not individuals who are hesitant to take the vaccine, but those who are organizing protests against uh, against the vaccine. Yeah, I, I just, I suggest, Mark. two different things, obviously. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's appropriate to conflate uh, resistance to vaccines with uh, resistance to vaccine mandates. I mean, some people uh, just don't want the mandates, irrespective of whether the vaccine is good or not. Yeah, except when you talk to some of these people, I've talked to, to a lot of them. Uh, almost all of them 
I, you know, they talk about the mandate, the mandate, the mandate, but then they basically say that there's no corona, it's all a government plot of some kind or another. Um, a, a lot of them, you know, I think you have to separate again. The, the, the issue is an individual's choice whether to take the vaccine or not is one thing. Yeah. And the, and the active uh, protests against them, and, and I'm sorry that, that it's almost impossible to, not to conflate those people who are opposing the idea of the mandate and those people who are opposing the vaccination, because so often it's one and the same. I mean, yes, there are, there are differences, and certainly there are politicians, obviously, who may oppose the mandate but themselves actually get vaccinated, um, and that's fine. But a lot of those people who are the most extremist in everywhere in the world, I mean, it, does, it seems to grow across borders. The most extreme anti-vaxxers are, are protesting not only the mandates. The mandates are a sort of a, a camouflage. They're protesting against the vaccines. They're protesting against big pharma. They're protesting against big government. Uh, all all those things are wrapped into one. Yeah. And interestingly enough, like I said, they seem to be equally represented both on the right and the left at this point. Yeah, one one other point, though. There's also this issue about misinformation and people feeling like uh, some information is being suppressed, other information amplified and exaggerated uh, w- with regard to defense of the vaccine mandates and uh, getting and the vaccines themselves. So, in other words, I think it's created this whole element of distrust. People just don't believe the information they're receiving. Well, part of the problem, of course, is the fact that we have these alternate sources of media via Facebook, etc., mm-hmm. that are disseminating just falsehoods about the vaccine. You know, there are still a, not a small percentage of people who still believe that Bill Gates has inserted a chip inside the vaccine to trace us all. Yeah. Well, that's on the margin. And, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's so out there. You can be against there. the vaccine by saying that, you know, there hasn't been enough testing. We don't know what the long-term impact might be, etc. Those are reasonable arguments to make, but to think that there's really a chip in there that Bill Gates has put in to to track us all? But Mark, look, that is on the margin. That's just the very extreme. Most people... Go go do a survey and see how many people believe it. It's not not such a small percentage of people. Yeah, but the point is that uh, I think a lot of people uh, are just (laughs) very concerned about the fact we don't know the long-term effects of this. And uh, more importantly, it's not even appropriate to talk about it. If you are, you're censured on Facebook and other media outlets. Uh, You know, the mainstream media won't talk about it. What's wrong with just getting all the information out there and let people discuss it, debate it, and then make it? It depends on what information. Look, you you, you talk about all the information out there, but a lot of the information that's coming from the anti-vax is just false. Absolute scientifically false. Yeah. And the reality is, I don't think we've ever seen a vaccine that has been so safe. Think about how at this point we're talking about over a billion people have received this vaccine and the number of cases of of side effects is is incredibly small to compared to a billion people getting the more than a billion at this point have gotten the vaccine. Yeah. So when you're talking about all the information, all the information, all the scientific information, all is all good and well. Uh, but when you're talking about all the information, when the information is false uh, why should it have it? Why should it be allowed to to circulate false information that is scientifically and absolutely proven to be false and hurts the the, the health of a, of a nation, whatever nation it might be? Yeah, I would There's always no suggest that. that, you know, that, that Good. No, I was just going to suggest that uh, we we can beat this thing to death, wrestle it to the ground, but I think better to, we'll move on. But I would suggest yes. uh, uh, Scott Atlas has put out a video. Uh, Tucker Carlson interviewed him for an hour on uh, Tucker Carlson today. A f- fantastic interview, and he, you know, this guy is a member of the Hoover Institution, a professor at Stanford University. He's a very credible guy, and he just talks about the lack of research going behind the decisions uh, that are being made that are leading to these results. So uh, it's not just the vaccine; it's also what people are deciding to do about the vaccines that's creating a lot of the problems. Well, we can continue to disagree. I believe that everybody should be vaccinated, yeah, uh, both for their own health and for the health of their of, of their nation. Well, thank you for that, Mark. And uh, you know, one of the reasons and one of the things I value a lot about you coming on the show is that you and I disagree about some of this stuff, which I think gives kind of our listeners it's healthy. A, a healthy. It's a darn healthy, and you know, we don't see enough of it these days. So let's Absolutely. let's move to Belarus. So it seems the um, dictator of Belarus has. Back down a little bit. In other words, his attempt at 
getting uh, asylum seekers to invade invade Poland has failed. Um, and what's also happened is his supply of additional um, un- undocumented refugees has dried up because every airline that was flying um, refugees in has stopped because they were basically threatened with sanctions from the EU mm-hmm. if they continue to do that. Um, so it's not clear what's going to happen to the ones that are in um, in his country at the moment. I mean, he may be stuck with them at this point, which is kind of interesting. Um, but he is trying anything he can in order to um, pressure the EU to lift sanctions against him, despite the fact that you know he's you know an absolute dictator. He may have gone a little too far in the last couple of days. He announced. Now I'm not really sure what happened. Did it actually happen or not? But he announced three days ago that the pipeline bringing natural gas from the Soviet—I say now I was going to say Soviet Union, yeah. Russia. <laughs> Uh, to um, Western Europe was going to be closed for maintenance for a few days. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to use that as leverage, but his one friend uh, in the world, which is, is Putin, basically told him he better not do that because Putin wants to use it himself whenever he wants to. And if, if the source is not generally reliable, then he loses that leverage, obviously. Interesting. So... So we'll see where that goes at this point. Yeah, so let, let's... Listen, he's a, yeah, he's a problem. Yeah, he is a problem and uh, has been a problem for decades, unfortunately. Yep, he's the last one, basically. The last man standing of uh, the Eastern European dictators, yeah. communist dictators. So let's move to a, a similar place in the world, in the Ukraine, uh, and what's what's happening there. Kind of standoff. Right, of- so there is fear, and now uh, there is fear that Russia might decide to invade Ukraine. Uh, people are saying that by the beginning of January, it'll be ready in terms of militarily ready to do so. Um, it's unknown. You know, again, Putin is a very, very difficult person to fully understand what he's planning to do. He claims that the West is creating a crisis that doesn't exist. I don't know. I'm not sure what the West's advantage of doing that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, by the way, just sent Ukrainians to use Coast Guard cutters to help with their navy, that's not going to be much for the, you know, that much to stop the, the Russians. Um, it's really very, very unclear, and he, he being Putin, might think he could get away with it, and the cost-benefit analysis is that he can grab Ukraine quickly, we'll all say no, 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 and we'll have done it, and prevent the West with a fait accompli. Um, I don't know. Um, it, it, it's unclear. It's unclear whether NATO uh, has the willpower to get as close as going to war with Russia over over the Ukraine. Yeah, I would suggest. But on the other hand, I would suggest you know, there's the, the uh, there is a lack of resistance, unfortunately, and and the I believe pro- the probability is quite high that if uh, Putin made this decision to uh, go into the Ukraine, uh, there would be a lot of saber rattling, but probably not not much uh, resistance. Quite possible. We, we, you know, it's. I've been reading and writing about some aspects of um, Poland right at the beginning of World War II, mm-hmm. and the Polish people all believed that the British and French would come to their aid immediately. The Germans wouldn't have a chance, and they didn't understand that even if the British and French wanted to, Germany had conquered Poland before anything else could happen. Not to mention the Soviets coming from the other side. Right. So yes, the Ukrainians are hoping that the rest of the world will come to their aid. I hope they're right, but mm-hmm. I fear they're wrong. Yeah, so we we share that sentiment. That although, and uh, you know, again, uh, the question is, what does Putin want to do? He, ha- you know, what? How is the Russian economy doing? Quite frankly, I, I just I wonder about the resources they have to pull off what they're trying to pull off. Okay, so the, don't forget, the only thing they have is resources. So right now, you know, for a while they were doing very poorly when the price of oil had plummeted. Mm-hmm. Now, with the price of oil as high as it is, obviously they're making a lot more money from oil. And and that really is the question. Their whole their whole economy is based on how much they get for oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, where that goes. The rest of their economy is a basket case, mm-hmm. um, and they've also been pretty heavily hit by by COVID. So, I mean, interestingly enough, they developed their own vaccine, but the Russian people don't want to take the Russian vaccine because they don't trust the Russian vaccine. Yeah. So. 
So let's uh, let's move to uh, thank you, uh, Mark. Let's move to uh, China and what's happening, especially with regard to uh, Biden's response. So they had a three-hour meeting. Um, obviously, neither neither you nor I were present at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening actually last today to Henry Kissinger's talk talking about it. And first of all, I have to say that I wish you and I his intellect at ninety-eight. Yeah. Um, that's that's that, that's one, leaving aside whether you like man or don't like the man, at 98, he's still completely, you know, all, all there to talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, the issue is, how do you thread the needle? How do you compete with the Chinese without uh, getting into a confrontation with the Chinese? How do you compete economically without getting into a trade war? Uh, all very, very difficult, very difficult to thread that needle. Uh, he mentioned something I thought was kind of interesting. He talked about, you know, he was asked, what about Taiwan? And does he think the Chinese will invade Taiwan? And he said he doesn't think, at least for the next 10 years, and that's as far ahead as he can see. I'm glad he, 98, he can see 10 years ahead. Yeah. Um, but um, he commented how when he and Nixon first met Mao, uh, the Thai issue of Taiwan came up, and Mao basically said to him, said to them, excuse me, that we eventually want want to make Taiwan and reunify all of China, but we're in no rush. We can wait maybe a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a, that's an optimistic view, shall we say? Um, it's a really difficult point. It really is because um, confrontations don't really end up end well. Um, the Chinese are, as opposed to the Russians, who have a third class economy. The Chinese have a first class economy, and technologically. In some ways, are are equal, mm-hmm. um, not not totally. We're still um, ahead of them in most areas, but they they've caught up in a tremendous amount. Yeah, and um, we do not need to have an arms race with the Chinese. I mean, that's a waste of money, obviously. Yeah, so on both our parts. So uh, two questions. The first is about the Chinese economy with everything that's happening with the real estate debacle and that's going on in China. Yeah, how how vibrant is the Chinese economy? The economy is in difficult is in trouble. It clearly is. Uh, on the other hand, you know the consumer demand that's up in the whole world. Mm-hmm. You know the same thing that's causing our our um, supply chain problems is also keeping those Chinese factories operating full tilt manufacturing to keep the world's uh, products. You know, someone made the, made a comment. I think is very true. COVID changed m- m- so many economies from a service economy back to a product economy. The money that we haven't been spending on traveling and eating out and all sorts of things, we're spending on new televisions and, you know, new physical objects for mm-hmm. our homes and offices and whatever. Mm-hmm. So that works to the Chinese advantage. Um, but they're over-leveraged quite clearly. Yeah. And, um, you know, once again, remember the Japanese. That's remember right. in the 1980s, we were all convinced that the world was, gonna, was going to be, uh, the Japanese were going to own the world. and. Yeah. Look what happened. And interestingly enough, the same situation between the United States and China and the United States and Japan exists. I was delayed, but now it's very much so. Um, China is a is a uh, losing population demographically. Yeah. Because of one child, uh, their numbers of workers every single year decrease. Uh, the United States, based on a, a higher birth rate and immigration, is still demographically growing. Yeah. And demographically growing is good. Yeah, um, we need to keep that up, and that's a easy. That's one of the ways we can compete well with the Chinese. We're, we're going to really run into demographic problems in the next fifteen years. No, that's right. I mean, the Chinese don't have a big uh, immigration problem because you know they've got so many Uyghurs, and that's about it. Uh, right now, we have people Listen, coming. You know, one thing we always have to remember about our immigration problem, and leave everything aside, leave, leave the politics of it aside. Yeah, the fact that so many people want to come to America. Yeah still says something very good about America, right? Because whether we, we want all of them here or don't want all of them here, we can, yes. leave, we can put that argument aside. Yeah. But the very fact that they want to come says something very positive. And, uh, you know, and you and I are in violent agreement about that one, Mark. So uh, last question, though. You'd mentioned about confrontation. To me, it seems clear that we need to maintain and make sure that Chinese, the Chinese understand that there are boundaries with their behavior. They can't steal intellectual property and do some of the things they've been doing in the past. That requires confrontation. Right, and I think it, it does require you know being straight up. I think from all I've heard of the Biden meeting with Jew, 
that took place quite clearly. You remember, there's one other fact to remember about, about China we should keep in mind. China has one ally, North Korea. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, the list of our allies is very long. Uh-huh. And Chinese expansion, or their attempted expansion, is, um, you know, has the result of pushing more people to be allied with the United States. Yeah. And getting more countries, you know, uh, the Australians buying these advanced submarines is a good thing for the United States. Mm-hmm. Leaving aside the export part, the very fact that they'll be, our allies will have advanced nuclear submarines, you know, to, to assist us in patrolling the seas is a very good thing. Yep. Mark, so, I, you know, this is a great commentary. As usual, we've run out of time before we've <laughs> run out of things to talk about. But again, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check out HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your up-to-date commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, everybody. You as well. Thank you, Mark. All right, coming up, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. I hope you check it out. You can download the app by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are an educational organization headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Our work is uh, both nationwide and occasionally abroad. We focus on young people of high school and college age, and our purpose and our mission uh, are to educate and inspire young people in ideas of individual liberty, free enterprise, private property, and personal character. Your listeners can learn more about us at our website, fee, org, where they'll see fresh daily commentary every day of the week, uh, some free videos and uh, courses, and uh, lots of other great information. Yeah, and if, if you have a, uh, I'm speaking to our listeners, if you have a child or somebody in your family who's uh, high school or college age, I've been to the uh, a couple of the national 
uh, meetings for the Foundation for Economic Education. So inspiring to see these young people responding to the concepts of responsibility, personal responsibility, and liberty, and uh, just introduce them. Uh, make sure that it would be life-transforming, in my view. Fee.org, F-E-E.org. So, Larry, uh, you wrote a column about a model for the ages, Booker T. Washington. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Booker T. Washington, uh, who was... Uh, known everywhere in this country and in many places abroad a hundred years ago, uh, is not so remembered today, but he ought to be because he was a truly remarkable uh, black American. He was born in 1856, uh, uh, born as a slave, uh, but later became, uh, as a free man, one of our nation's greatest advocates for self-improvement, building a person up through giving him responsibility and uh, and also uh, expecting each and every person to do his part, to be as productive uh, as he can possibly be. So he wasn't the kind of guy who would sit around and complain about his uh, situation. He was the kind of guy who said, look, I can prove to you that I'm worthy of your respect just by the achievements that I will uh, accomplish. And he was an example of that for everybody of his race. In fact, even back then, he, he began to voice concerns about race baiters. He sure did. In fact, uh, in one of his great uh, remarks, he said, there is a class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. I mean, that is so well put. It sounds like he's talking about Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and so many of the uh, self-anointed uh, uh, civil rights leaders of today. That's exactly right. Although, and, and he also believed in uh, getting ahead, but also by education and uh, making sure that you have the skills and knowledge in order to make a contribution to the world. And that was the whole thing for him. It was, what can you contribute, not what can you take from, from the uh, country? And he founded a great university. That's right. If all he had done with regard to education was to talk about it, and uh, implore people to get one. I mean, he may have been still a very famous man, but uh, he put flesh on the bones by actually going out and starting his own university. It was called Tuskegee. It still exists in Alabama. In fact, a few years ago, I was on the campus and took a guided tour of his home, uh, which was quite remarkable. Just to be in the, uh, in the home where he lived there at Tuskegee was, was quite a remarkable thing. But uh, he founded Tuskegee. It has trained and educated blacks by the thousands over the years. And uh, it was part of his philosophy that uh, if we're going to fix the race problem, we have to uh, see things like business and industry and personal productivity as key ingredients in solving that problem. People have to prove their worth in the marketplace, white or black. Yeah, many people are not aware that... uh uh, the the marriage, people staying together, families together, and this that type of thing, all through after the Civil War was so strong among the black community, and yeah. unfortunately, the, the I, in my opinion, the Great Society ended up ending that because of some of the policies that we put into place. But uh, he really he really spoke out about enhancing the whole notion of uh, self determination and success and and being a contribution, being a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block for the human race. That's right, and he would be appalled if he could see the course of recent history. He died in 1915, but if he'd been around, say, another 100 years, he would have seen that through the 1940s or so, uh, as you pointed out, Bob, uh, black families were intact. Uh, Marriages uh, in the black community were as strong as they were in the white community, and uh, uh, blacks really regarded a solid family life as important to progress, but then... Uh, that began to break down with the coming of the welfare state, uh, when government, in effect, was paying people uh, to uh, to break up their families. You get more money if the father leaves the home. That's our that's been our welfare policy for decades, and 
Booker T. Washington would be horrified at that. Absolutely. Larry, uh, with the little time we have left, I was hoping you could share with us, uh, you included in your column, uh, some quotes uh, from uh, Booker T. Washington. I thought it might be appropriate to close the discussion with, with some of those. Okay, yes. He had some very eloquent things to say. He said, uh, I think I have learned that the best way to lift oneself up is to help someone else. Hmm. There is no power on earth that can neutralize the influence of a high, pure, simple, and useful life. Uh, another one is, I have never had much patience with those already, always ready to explain why one cannot succeed. I have always had high regard for the man who could tell me how to succeed. Hmm. And then finally, uh, I learned the lesson that great men cultivate love and that only little men cherish the spirit of hatred. I learned that assistance given to the weak makes the one who gives it strong, and that oppression of the unfortunate makes one weak. Great quotes. Just so universal and so appropriate for today, as well as back in the day that uh, he founded Tuskegee uh, Institute. Yes. Larry, I just so much appreciate uh, your commentary here on the show, and I just want to refer our listeners to your website, feefee.org. Again, young person in your life, introduce them to this great organization, feefee.org. Larry, thank you so much for your commentary here on the show. Thank you, Bob, and to you and to your listeners, a very happy Thanksgiving. And to you as well, Larry. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Father the Leader and its shake and the uh, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America. It's now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board. And just one of the programs is creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Jim McTagg. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's an author of several books. His two latest are Great Murder Mysteries. We make great Christmas gifts. The first is Father the Leader and the sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's a pleasure, uh, 
being with you, Bob. Thank you so much, Jim. So, I mean, the world has been changed significantly by what happened with COVID-19. A lot of folks deciding to work from home. I would imagine that was uh, pretty prevalent with government workers as well. Uh, yes. Uh, at the height of COVID, something like 56% of the federal workforce uh, was telecommuting. Uh, and this is a statistic from 2019. Hmm. It might be closer to 47% today, but the fact is we don't have good statistics. And uh, the fact is we don't have the, these federal workers are not being properly supervised. So we really don't know that they're working. So uh, the Republicans this year have been getting complaints from their constituents primarily the elderly and veterans, uh, that when they go to the Social Security office or Veterans Affairs office, there's nobody there to help them. If you go to the Social Security website, uh, they encourage you to telephone. So Republicans have uh, been agitating for a return of fully vaccinated federal workers to the workplace. Uh, they even introduced legislation earlier this year to achieve that. Uh, but the Biden administration wants to make telecommuting a permanent hmm. fixture of the federal government. Uh, now, this is bizarre. I, I want to time travel a bit. Uh, when I was uh, you know, the Washington bureau chief for Barron's, uh, pre-COVID, I, I talked to a uh, contractor once who went into a federal department and some of the employees were bold enough to bring pillows, and they would sleep at their desks all day rather than work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where was and, the supervision to place? Where yeah. was supervision in the first place, right? Yeah, well, HUD, uh, they had a problem with no-show employees. And if a supervisor fired said employee, the union would sue the supervisor, and the federal government would not pay the supervisor for his legal expenses. He mm. would have to go to court to fire this worker using money from his own pocket. So what supervisor in his right mind is going to fire an employee right. who, has, who has union backing? So, so the point being uh, that slackers rule in the, in the federal, federal government. So, um, uh, so let's go to this year again. Each department has an inspector general department, which is supposedly supervising the performance of employees uh, at Social Security, the Inspector General decided to supervise its own employees, its own Inspector General people, and uh, they have something like 200 prosecutions underway for Inspector Generals who aren't doing their their jobs, um, you know, based on computer usage. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Jim, I, I just think back to Reagan days when he, he promised us that he was going to bring a smaller government. Of course, he couldn't because you can't fire. Uh, uh, federal employees same thing was happened uh, during trump's period of time and that uh, that's going to be true in the future if there's everything any time it's been clear that we have people that are not only not engaged with uh, helping the federal government and, and its mission but also <laughs> fighting against uh its mission it's uh, right now and uh, we need to downsize government unfortunately it's just impossible to do to the based on the points that you just made yeah. Also, what happens is because the, the federal payrolls are are so generous in Washington D.C., you yeah. have the creation of a, a sort of a, an Athenian city state where where you have these powerful, rich uh, bureaucrats uh, running the the government, and uh, it, it's to the detriment of everybody else in the country. So so. Uh, you know, uh, it'd be great to be able to shrink or even break up the federal government. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, uh, you know, you have Joe Biden who wants to institutionalize this telecommuting, which would which would really give, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, pay for, for no-show jobs. Uh, I think there's something like three million uh, federal workers across the country. And, you know, the largest percent of them, I'm sure, are, are diligent and, and, you know, good people trying to do a, a worthy job. But every organization has slackers. And when taxpayers are paying for the slacking and you're not able to uh, uh, 
supervise or, or fire these people, uh, that's a national disgrace. Yeah, I mean, I think your comment it may minimize the importance of culture, but, you know, some cultures, you know, they just don't tolerate uh, people who, are, who don't perform and don't uh, contribute. Unfortunately, I think the culture right now in the federal government is, look, uh, go along to get along. Bring your pillow. <laughs> well, these are... Uh, these federal employees are also a voting block. You can see it in Northern Virginia, where where there are hundreds of thousands of uh, bureaucrats uh, living. Yeah, uh, it's solidly uh, blue. So, you know, it's an important political constituency of the Democratic Party, and that's why uh, Biden, you know, wants to make the job as cushy as possible for these bureaucrats. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to take you off your message here, but. Uh is there anything that could be done to downsize the government? I now, with a with, quite frankly, as I understand it now, that uh, uh, public employee unions now they, they, there's no obligation to join them based on a case that was decided in California. Is there a way that we could actually uh, reduce the size of government by letting people go? No, you, you really have to <laughs> I, have. Uh, I was afraid Congress, that was your answer. <laughs> you'd have to have Congress cooperate. Uh, on a uh, program to modernize the federal government. And, and you would assume that any modernization uh, using good technology uh, would shrink the size of the federal government. Mm -hmm. I, I know that Clinton and Gore had an effort to, uh, to modernize the uh, federal government, which was um, partially successful by you know, introducing uh, updated uh, technology. But the federal government uh, really trails behind the, the rest of the country. Um, gee, maybe they uh, sh should contract out to private contractors uh, some of the federal functions, number one. And number two, we really need an assessment of uh, whether we need these uh, departments. You know, some of them date back to the Civil War. And thirdly, uh, we don't need all these departments in Washington. Yeah. You know, the Department of Agriculture, you know, move it out. Uh, into Iowa or, or farm country, exactly. in which case a lot of the bureaucrats uh, here in Washington wouldn't move out there because uh, they're snobs. So you would you would be spreading the federal payroll around to various uh, parts of the country. Well, they'd and, get creative and, and telecommute, Jim. <laughs> well, well, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah that's the problem. So, so but, but uh, it's a great point. And uh, I, I think it was actually Clinton who expanded the federal payroll by basically uh, there was a discussion in an off-topic uh, subcommittee meeting basically saying that uh, federal employees are not making enough money. So Congress fixed that. They increased the uh, pay, and now it's a boondoggle. Quite frankly, federal employees are waking, making far more than they can justify based on their jobs. So, well, yeah, uh, to your point, uh, freezing federal salaries would be a good way to downsize the uh, workforce and get people into the, get productive people into the private sector. Yeah. Uh, great discussion, and uh, just brings up the whole notion about this, uh, the fat that we have in government right now. Uh, I think it was Max Weber that made the comment, you know, the purpose of a bureaucracy, once established, is to maintain and grow power and, and grow its size. And we've certainly seen that with the federal government. Now the monster's taken over. Basically, it has a life of its own, and uh, there's no controlling it, I guess, and it's going to take an act of Congress. It's a spoil system, and as uh, you pointed out, before we went on the air, we have what I call the build a better Biden trillion dollar boondoggle now going to the, the Senate. Hopefully it will go nowhere. Um, yeah. but essentially, the purpose of that bill is to, uh, you know, we have a president whose whose popularity is, is at a record low. He's probably got the lowest popularity of any president in memory, and he's trying to fix that uh, through the spoil system, yeah. you know, throwing trillions of dollars of taxpayer money at the voters prior to the midterm elections. So let's let's all hope that effort fails. I think he's got a tin here. I don't think people are going to respond to that. Jim McTague, again, the two great books, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. Make great Christmas gifts, quite frankly. Jim, always appreciate your commentary on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Always appreciate your feedback. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator, 
Boo Mortensen will be joining us. We'll find out what's new with Boo here on the Paradise Coast. Seat Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And my wife, Linda, author of Greetings from Paradise, will be with us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com.